All right, Alexander, let's talk about some neocon diplomacy. <laughs> I guess that's the right way to, uh, to phrase it. So uh, we have an article in Foreign Affairs with the title, Don't Let Ukraine Join NATO. The cost of expanding the alliance outweigh the benefit. And to, uh, to go along with this article on foreign affairs, we have some of these neocons who are warning the Biden White House about having Ukraine join NATO. These uh, neocons are actually engaging with Russian diplomats to try and find a settlement to the crisis in Ukraine. Is that right? Am I, am I in an alternate universe or something? What is, what is going on here? No, you're not in an, in, an alternate uni, universe. You're absolutely correct. That is exactly what's, what is happening. We're starting to see a split because between the, if I can put it like that, the more militant neocon hardliners, Blinken, Newland, those sort of people, if you like the more fundamentalist ones, and people who have been neocons all of their political careers, but are now starting to get cold feet, are starting to get really, really worried about the direction that events are taking, and are trying to find a way out. So the group that we're talking about is centred on the Council for Foreign Relations. Now, this is the most single most prestigious um, foreign policy think tank, if that's the right word, group of people. It's sort of semi-official. It brings all sorts of people, ex-diplomats, ex-top officials together in Washington. It has been headed for many, many years by its president, a man called Richard Haas, who is now stepping down and it holds huge sway over um, the way in which foreign policy is conducted in the United States. And it's important to stress when we're talking about the conduct of foreign policy um, in the United States that at least since the early 1990s, at least since the end of the Cold War, and arguably even to a certain extent before that, even to some extent during the late the, the period of the Reagan-George W. Bush administration, uh, the people who we today call the neocons were increasingly gaining traction and control of U.S. foreign policy. And after the Cold War, they secured total control of U.S. foreign policy and became, in effect, the U.S. foreign policy establishment. They run the State Department, they run the CIA, they have great influence in the um, Department of Defense, and of course they also are very heavily entrenched in the bureaucracy, such as it is, of the National Security Council, which technically works for the White House. So they are the foreign policy establishment. Now, they have started to get worried and we saw the first glimmers of that with that report by the Rand Corporation, which we discussed way back in January. They're starting to say that the United States doesn't gain anything from a prolonged war in Ukraine and that there is no mechanism for Ukraine to win and that the United States risks getting drawn into some sort of a debacle. 
And it's now clear that these people who have their contacts in the military and in the um, intelligence community, the more realistic people there, have never really believed in the prospects of this Ukrainian offensive. And whilst Sergei Lavrov, no less, was in New York in April to attend a United Nations General Assembly session, they apparently contacted him and arranged a meeting with him. This was a meeting in which Richard Haas was directly involved and other top US diplomats, I should stress retired US diplomats, were also directly involved. And they met with uh, Lavrov. And obviously, they did so without the formal permission, or rather the formal direction of the Biden administration. But these are people who are able to meet with um, Lavrov. They've clearly bypassed Biden himself. And I really want to, I'm going to, we'll come back to that. They bypassed B Biden. They informed the US government of what they were doing. They reported on their meeting with Lavrov to the US government, to the State Department, the White House, the National Security Council. It seems as if they have maintained more contacts with the Russians since that April meeting and what they were doing. And this is no longer speculation. It's been reported by NBC and other places is that they've been trying to find some way out of the Ukraine war. They've been talking with Lavrov, trying to explore with Lavrov, with the Russians, some mechanism for the United States to gain an off-ramp. And this latest article in Foreign Affairs, which is a magazine, it's one of the three big heavyweight foreign policy magazines in the United States. One is Foreign Affairs, the other, confusingly, is foreign policy. They're often muddled with each other. The third is the national interest. Anyway, foreign affairs, perhaps the most prestigious of the three. An article has now appeared which clearly sets out their views. Don't let Ukraine into NATO. Ukrainian membership of NATO is a disastrous idea. It is uh, a very high potential for drawing NATO into a war with Russia, that would put NATO in a disastrous position where they would have to decide either to go to war with Russia, which would mean World War III and the end of civilization, at least in the West, as we know it, or in the alternative, and this is clearly what they're worried about, is that there would be a massive climb down. The West would refuse to honour its Article 5 obligations to come to the defence of Ukraine, in which case NATO would not just be humiliated, but its entire purpose as an alliance would end. It would be exposed that Article 5 was a bluff, in which case NATO would collapse and the key structure holding together the Atlantic system the American empire, if you prefer, would, would fall apart. So what they're saying is never Ukraine in NATO. 
And that's probably what they're telling the administration. And that's probably also what they're telling um, what they're telling Lavrov. Now, of course, if this had been conceded before the war, if this had been agreed to when the Russians proposed those draft treaties back in December 2021, there wouldn't have been a war at all. Yeah, well, you know, we had the agreement in place. We had many agreements in place, and uh, it was always the Newland uh, Lincoln hardliners that always uh, won yes. out. Yes. Um, but, you know, I think, I think the second point that you made is what's driving this, this thinking, which is that, uh, that NATO, if Ukraine was to be led into NATO, then Article 5 would be, would be exposed as a bluff. Um, yes. I, I cannot imagine, you know, I, I say this now, but I, I would hope that uh, if, if there were a scenario where Ukraine were given NATO uh, membership or a pathway to NATO membership in this meeting in Vilnius, which I don't think is going to happen, I think it's clear that that's not going to be the case. But if it were the case, then uh, many countries in Europe, especially many of the smaller countries in Europe, would not uh, go to World War III over Ukraine. I, I can't see it. I can't see, for example, Greece going to war for Ukraine. I, I can't imagine. Of course, I could, you know, the Mitsotakis government, you know, we've talked at great length about, about the government in, in Greece, but the people, I think, would just, even people that support Ukraine in Greece would still not want uh, to go to World War III. My point in all of this is that I think these neocons have realized that NATO is in jeopardy, and if NATO is in jeopardy, then the, the, the gravy train, the money, the military-industrial complex behind NATO is in jeopardy. And, and it's kind of the argument. It's kind of going to the Biden White House and saying, look, uh, it would have been great if we destroyed Russia. It would have been great if we were able to to uh, balkanize Russia and to get our hands on, on all of the resources and all of these things that, that we've talked about as well at great lengths. But it didn't happen. So let's not destroy NATO as well. And let's, let's not destroy this, this incredible money-making machine that we have uh, in the process. I mean, I think at the end of the day, that's, that's her thing. I don't know. Uh, what, you're, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what's happened. I mean, the, the plan, the, and not just the plan, but the assumption behind the plan was that Russia was weak. So the idea was, you get a war in Ukraine. I mean, I remember you know, articles by people like Wes Mitchell in uh, National Interest. He was actually talking about this plan. The plan was drag Russia into a war in Ukraine, impose overwhelming sanctions upon it, smash its economy, break it apart, break the economy, create a political crisis there. Um, break the power of President Putin, cause his government to fall, and um, and then, of course, gain control of Russian foreign policy, balkanize the country. This was the great plan, and you know, it's, I, I want to stress: this is not just our speculation. It's based upon actual writings by neocons. They've, they've discussed this. I mean, uh, that West Mitchell article that I discussed in the National Interest, which in my opinion has been much diluted and changed and altered since then. But in its original version, it set it all up, as I remember it, very, very clearly indeed. 
And if you go into the sort of undergrowths of neocon writings, you'll find they're all over the place. And there's been piece after piece about the need to decolonise Russia, break up Russia, do all kinds of things, engineer regime change in Russia, statements that, you know, even if whoever succeeds Putin is going to be at least as nationalistic as Putin, it's still better to get rid of Putin because Putin himself is what holds the whole thing together. So let's get him out of the way and everything will fall apart and we will triumph. So that was the plan, except it didn't work. It didn't work economically because the Russian economy proved to be much stronger than everybody expected. It didn't work militarily, as I think they thought it might in the summer and autumn of last year when they drank all the stories that, you know, the Russian military was incompetent, disorganized, demoralized, corrupt, all of those things that Ukraine could actually win the war. It's clearly that hasn't happened. And so the people who retain a certain connection with reality, people like Richard Haas, are saying, my God, this was supposed to be an existential war for the Russians. It's now turned into an existential war for us. That was a point, by the way, made by the French uh, uh, theorist and sociologist Emmanuel Todd in the autumn of last year. It's important that we should say that because he said that. But anyway, these people, Richard Hassenko, are, start, are, are seeing that. And they say, my God, we can't risk this. This is a disaster. And we've got to find a way to stop. It hasn't worked. So let's not press on with this and go on pressing what is increasingly looking like a self-destruct button. Problem they have is they think like this. I don't think the president himself does. I don't think Biden does. I mean, the comments from the Biden administration, now that news of these meetings has leaked, and it's interesting to find out who it was who's leaked the news about these meetings. Anyway, the comments of the Biden administration have been extremely negative. They've been saying, you know, this is nothing to do with us. We're not in any way involved. Our policy remains nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, which, to be honest, is a disastrous policy, a disastrous approach to take. But anyway... I don't think the president himself is convinced, and of course the Newland-Blinken axis isn't convinced either. But if we go back to the nearest comparable situation which existed when the United States was faced with a situation that bore some resemblance to this one, though nowhere near as critical, which is in the 1960s, at the time when it became clear that the United States could not achieve a military victory in Vietnam, it was precisely the same sort of people that the Richard Hasses of that time, who basically rebelled and who started saying, we've got to talk to the other side. And it's important to understand that it was the rebellion of those people, the sort of foreign policy the uber establishment, if you like, and uh, the high high ranking people in the military, particularly the people 
in charge of the US's strategic forces, as well as large parts of the US's military industrial complex, its business community, its big law people. It was when those people started to rebel, much more than when the, you know, the students protested and all that, that caused foreign policy in the United States after a certain time to start to shift. So we're starting to see that pattern reassert itself. Yeah, the problem with that is, is the president and the team around him. I mean, you have, a, you have a president and a team that is emotionally invested in Ukraine. I don't, I don't think during the time of Vietnam, you had a team that, that was in the White House that was emotionally connected to Ukraine. And, you know, once again, we don't have to get back into Burisma and Hunter Biden, Newland, and, and all of these people in the history that they have with Ukraine. But it's, it's crystal clear to me that that they are extremely sensitive and emotionally connected to to Project Ukraine in a way that that, that is that is clouding their their judgment. If, if if you want to say that they have judgment, but it's clouding their their judgment, and it's it's putting NATO and the United States at risk. But they don't seem to care because they they're, they're driven by this visceral hate for Russia and and this emotional connection to this this project that they've been involved in for many many decades and this is this is what i see as the big problem how do you get past this well how absolutely. do you get past this visceral hate for russia and this this emotional uh, connection to to use ukraine to destroy russia i mean i don't think you had these dynamics playing out in vietnam no, you don't. You had the opposite. Dynamic. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, no, you had the absolute opposite dynamic. Now, Lyndon Johnson, who was the president at that time, who was a straightforward to say this, an immensely capable and very clever man, very, very different from Joe Biden. I mean, he was deeply corrupt, but that's another story. But he was still a clever man and he was still extremely capable. Um, he became politically invested in Vietnam, but he was never emotionally invested in it. On the contrary, about the Vietnam War, he had been a consistent skeptic. He had been pushed into it by the hardliners within the National Security Council and the Pentagon, very much against his better judgment. And we now know that because we have lots of information about the way in which policy was decided in, in the 1960s. So he was not, and by the way, the other thing to say about Lyndon Johnson is that he, he did not have the visceral animosity towards either the Vietnamese, obviously, or the Russians at that time, or the Chinese. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't that type of man. Biden, unfortunately, is nonetheless, and this is perhaps the thing to bear in mind about what happened in the 60s, because Johnson himself was so politically invested in Vietnam, when he did eventually announce that there would be um, negotiations in Paris to try to find some kind of an end to this conflict, I mean, he understood that his political position had collapsed and he resigned, 
or rather he didn't resign, he said that he would not stand for re-election. Up to that point, it looked as if he was going to stand for re-election. And effectively, he was manoeuvred out of the presidency because despite his doubts, despite his scepticism, despite the fact that he still had considerable traction within American society, it came to be understood within the political establishment and the deep state of that period that they needed to find a way to end the war. It, it came to be understood that he was nonetheless a kind of roadblock. Now, I don't think Joe is as compliant to quitting the scene as Lyndon Johnson was. Lyndon Johnson was an extremely experienced and clever political leader. He understood that he'd reached checkmate position, basically. So I'd, I think Biden is different in that respect. Of course, as you correctly say, he's also viscerally committed to this conflict. And he's surrounded by other people who are viscerally committed with him. You see that, you know, he's still escalating. He's now going to authorise the supply... Well, he has authorised the supply of cluster munitions. So, I mean, he's not someone who is going to simply back away. So this is the problem. This is the problem that, you know, the Richard Hasses and people like that have. Until they come out openly, which is very difficult to do in the American system, but unless and until they come out openly and say straightforwardly to the American people, the president is the problem. It's going to be very, very difficult for the United States to change course. Well, the, the Democrats are never going to do that. But the one thing that they can do is that they can try to maneuver Biden out of the White House. Yes. And you could make an argument that the DNC and the Democrat uh, Party is trying to do that. You may, maybe there are some forces in the party. Um, actually, we know that there are forces in the party that do not want Biden yes. to run in 2024. Yes. We know that. That's not a secret. Yes. But there are forces in the party, including Biden and his family, that uh, that absolutely want to run in 2024. I I, I believe that Biden's uh, wife is is one of the driving forces that wants to keep Biden uh, in the office of the of the president. That's just my own um, uh, belief. But you know, even if you maneuver Biden out of the White House. You're stuck with a State Department that's infested, infected with neocons. From, yes. from top to bottom, it's, it's yes. full of, of these uh, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton appointees who, who managed to stay there, whether it's Republican or Democrat. Yes. And, and I think there you have a huge obstacle. So, I mean, I, I throw the question to you. The only way that you're going to resolve Ukraine... Is, is either with some sort of a new administration and a cleaning house of, of, of the State Department or uh, a Russia uh, victory, a victory which, which will definitively um, hobble, if not destroy NATO. Absolutely. Now, can I just say a few things? I, I, I don't know. He, you know I, I think yeah, you're absolutely right. But let, let's, let's, let's talk about some of the problems that the DNC has. Firstly, they have no simple and clear-cut alternative to Biden himself. I mean, 
back in the 60s, when um, Johnson was, you know, persuaded not to stand or became clear to Johnson that he couldn't really stand, there was an alternative, and that was the vice president, Hubert Humphrey, who was an experienced veteran political leader, widely respected in the United States. He was, num he was a convincing candidate for the presidency in 1968. He didn't win. <laughs> um, he lost the presidency largely because of you know, the problems that existed at that time. But he actually came quite close to winning. And, of course, the Democrats were able to control, even despite the fact that they lost the election, they still, after the election, remained in control of Congress. This time, the Democrats have no simple alternative. You can't just persuade Biden to step down, because then you have the other problem, which is Kamala Harris. And she's going to be very difficult to get her to, set, to step aside. And she is not, to say it straightforwardly, a convincing candidate for the presidency in 2024. Somebody who not only, even if they lose, they will not lose in a way that could undermine the Democrats' position in Congress, which is at least as important to them as holding on to the presidency itself. And there are various people who are talked about who might be alternatives too. I think the, the name that I'm starting to hear increasingly is Newsom, who is the governor of California. I mean, he seems to be the person that people are talking about. <coughs> Not clear to me whether Newsom is even interested in the job and has even been sounded out. And I frankly think it's unlikely that he would want to take on either Biden or Kamala Harris. So they have that problem. The second is, and you absolutely put your finger on the key problem. There is a big difference between the Hawks, as they were called, of the 1960s and the neocons today. The Hawks of the 1960s were like the neocons of the Richard Haas type. People who had very strong, extreme pro-US you know, pro hegemony positions but who nonetheless had some connection to reality. Today's hawks, today's neocons, the ones that, as you rightly say, are in, have infested the State Department and entrenched themselves inside the State Department and the National Security Council and the US intelligence community, are a far more ideological, far more deeply embedded group of people. And... They will provide always a push towards taking maximalist positions. And in the event that they see an attempt to shift the president out of office in order to open the way for negotiations with Russia, they will act as a phalanx to protect him. So it's a different, completely different political setup in Washington today. You can see some of the same people who had, the kind of people who had doubts in the late 60s, having the same kind of doubts today, trying to explore ways out. But they are less influential today, in today's Washington, 
than they were in the 1960s. And the Democratic Party, institutionally, is much weaker today than it was then. It doesn't have the ability to simply push a powerful and strong president, which is what Lyndon Johnson was, and replace it with somebody convincing. Because the convincing people are simply not there this time. So it's, it's a very, very difficult situation that they have. And they have a very short time span, span in which to do it. And of course the danger is that what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks and months is more rancour and argument and tension within the administration and between the administration and some of the European allies. But remember, not all of the European allies want to see a de-escalation with Russia. Some do. Austria has come out, spoken about it. France might do fairly soon, especially if the Macron government collapses, which is not impossible. Some might do. But, you know, within Germany, for example, the coalition is split. Um, there might be some people in the SPD and the FBD, the Liberal Party, who want to, who are prepared to look at this whole situation again. But the Beerbock Harbeck axis is not going to want to do that. So, you know, it, 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 it's a much more difficult situation. And the risk is that because you can't change course for all these institutional reasons, we will come back to the default position, which is further escalation. Cluster bombs, Takam's missiles, F-16s, keep your finger crossed, say to yourself, well, the Prigozhin affair wasn't a flash in the pan by some eccentric oligarch. It was actually a sign of cracks within the political system in Russia. Prigozhin his, uh, his business jet is flying between uh, Minsk and St. Petersburg, so that means that he's up to something. You know, you have all these people talking like this, and instead of finding a solution or looking for a real solution, they will, things will continue to drift, and we see more escalation, more conflict instead, and... Um, all sorts of dangerous ideas, like sending troops in from Poland or extending guarantees to Ukraine, which amount to NATO membership, and but fall short of it in some way, but which might potentially commit the United States. We could start to see things like that happen. And then, of course, the other side is the Russians, because the Russians, from every indication that I can see, are apps, have had it... Well, their patience in, in terms of diplomacy is now effectively exhausted. And one wonders whether they would settle for any terms that even people like Richard Haas and Thomas Graham and people like that might, uh, you know, balk at. I mean, you know, they might insist, well, you know, we've got to have the four regions... We've got to have also Russian troops in Odessa, even if Odessa remains under Ukrainian sovereign control. But we've got to have Russian troops there to protect the local Russian people. We have to have major changes in the government in Kiev. We have to revisit the December 2021 treaties. All of those kind of things. And it, that might be very, very difficult even for the relative realists to accept. 
So, you know, at the moment, it's interesting. And it tells us a lot about the state of the war that these soundings are being made. And notice that the initiative has come from the American side, not the Russian. It's not the Russians who are going out asking for the Americans for negotiations. It's the Americans who are coming to the Russians instead. So it's interesting that it's happening. It tells us something about the state of the war. It tells us that there are people in Washington who are becoming increasingly worried that Ukraine is going to lose. But it doesn't mean that we're going to have a negotiated compromise in the end. I think we're probably as far from that as ever. No, and I mean, uh, to, to wrap the video, if you're, if you're Russia, you've, you've, uh, you've managed to sustain the big attack, which was the economic attack. The minute Russia was able to repel the economic war that was waged against it, yeah. they effectively won this conflict. Yes. Because their, their economy now is, is stable, it's, uh, it's on track to grow. Yeah. It's removed itself from the uh, collective West architecture. It has a whole bunch of partners, China, BRICS, uh, the SCO. So they've got that squared away. Now they can just kind of sit, uh, I don't want to say sit back, but they can, they can focus on, on grinding down the Ukraine military without making any big moves. Yes. And they can allow NATO and the collective West to destroy themselves. Yes. So when in a year's time or in a year and a half, you know, the, the Germans, the German government, whatever government's in place, they can say, you know, it's Russia's fault that we've been deindustrialized. But no, you did it to yourself. The United States can say it's Russia's fault that, that, we've, uh, that, that we're in a recession. And uh, our military is much weaker. No, you did it to yourself. And you can, you can carry that, that thicket across every country in the collective West. It wasn't Russia that actually did anything to you. Your, 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 your visceral hate and your obsession with, uh, with this conflict in Ukraine, the constant ex escalation, did it to you. You did it to yourselves. And I think that's the, that's the strategy that Russia can now implement because... You know, they've got their, their, their economy is covered. They have their allies, you know, to, that have their back. And they can now just focus on the special military operation. That's what you hear from Peskov and from Lavrov constantly. Yeah. The goals of the special military operation will be achieved. To me, that's, that's the Russians saying, you know, we're just going to continue to grind down the, the Ukraine military. If it's NATO, we'll grind down NATO. If it's mercenaries, we'll grind down mercenaries. But we're not in need to, to, to make any big moves. It's you guys that have to make the big moves. We don't need to make the big moves. And the cluster munitions, problem, yes. But we'll deal with it. F-16s, problem, yes. But we'll deal with it. I mean, this, this is, this is the way I'm, I'm looking at it. I think, and I think this is the way Russia's, Russia's looking at it. Absolutely. The I, they I, won the economic war, which they won, it was pretty much game over. Absolutely. Can I just add to that? And I, I agree with every point you've just made, but there's a further point to make as well, which is, of course, people always forget that Vladimir Putin and his officials in the Kremlin have to take something else into account, which is Russian public opinion. Now, Russians have fought in this war. Russians have died in this war. They now sense that they're winning. I mean, this is now... Uh, I, I think it's not just... 
you know, people in the Kremlin or the defence ministry, but I think it's now general feeling within Russian society that, you know, they're winning. So, from Putin's point of view, if he cuts a deal with the West, which is, as far as most Russians are concerned, gone back on every single deal that the Russians ever made with them. But if he does another deal with the West, if he agrees with the Minsk three type agreement, I'm, you know, I'm not saying it would be a Minsk three, but if he comes up with something like that, they will, they will turn on him. They will say, what was all that for? Why are you stealing defeat, taking defeat from the jaws of victory? <laughs> I mean, we're almost there. You know, we're, we're, happy, we're, we're all united behind you. We want to see this thing go through to the end. We can, we're grinding the Ukrainians down. We're putting the West in their place. Our economy is stable. All is going well. Why should we accept less when, in fact, we are in a position to dictate terms and end this problem? that we've had on our Western borders once and for all. And that is, an, that is an attitude, a sentiment that Putin himself simply cannot afford to ignore. It's a fact which people, again, just, just never grasp this. And it does exist. If you spend any time at all reading Russian websites or, you know, um, Russian newspapers, you will find it there. It's, it, it's, it's there all the time. Now, Westerners may assume that Putin is this all-powerful autocrat and dictator who can just decide whatever he wants and come to peace. And, um, you know, everybody clicks their heels in Russia and salutes and says, you know, we agree with you, Mr. President, because we've got no choice. But that isn't the reality in Russia today. And it hasn't been certainly since the uh, Cold War. I don't think it's ever been that way, actually. But, you know, I'm not going to discuss that now. But that is the reality today. Putin cannot afford to come back to the Russian people and say, look, all of those people died, thousands of them. We don't know how many, far fewer than Ukrainians, but thousands of Russians have died fighting this war. We, he can't afford to go back and say to them, well, look, you know, we did all of this and it was in order to get some kind of agreement which the West, on past experience, is, let, is most unlikely to honour in the future. So um, yeah, uh... that, that is another impulse, that is another reason why the Russians would want to press on. We've said this for a while now. The, the best way for the collective West, the European Union and the U.S., to get some sort of chance at regime change, or at least knock down Putin's uh, polling numbers, is to beg him for a negotiated settlement, yes. to beg yes. him for a ceasefire. It sounds crazy to say it, mm -hmm. but if they really want to damage Putin's approval rating, they should be like, calling him up 24 hours, seven days a week, begging him for a ceasefire. Yes. Yes. 
Well, of course, to some extent they are. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, we understand that uh, Scholz is trying to call him and Putin isn't answering his calls and things of this kind. And the Russians have made um, uh, statements, made very clear-cut statements, that as far as they're concerned, all of the objectives set out in the special military operation announced by, announced by Putin in February must be fulfilled in full. So, yeah, what the West has to do, because, I mean, it's got, if it's for its own sake, it's got to tell the Russians, look, we're prepared to go back, revisit those two draft treaties that you proposed back in December 2021, and basically accept a demilitarized, neutralized, neutral Ukraine, uh, with, you know, all of the people, all of that noxious ideology eliminated and the change of government there and also we also accept de facto if not de jure that the four regions and perhaps more more than more of ukraine than that are now part of russia so that they have to do that and that's what i said i think that that might be very difficult for richard Haas and company to accept even if they understand that they've got to end the war but politically speaking, it's very difficult now to see how Putin can settle for anything less. I don't even know if he would settle for that now. Well, oh, that's, a, that's another question. And, you know, even if he did settle for something like that, I think he could just about put it through. But there would still be a lot of people in Russia who would feel very angry. He would take a hit. He would he? take a hit. On, he, on would, his, he, mean, would he, he would have to expend some political capital. He would have to expend some political capital to do it. He might do it. He might do it because he might say, well, you know, I'm going to take what I can. I, I don't want to overextend myself. This is in our interest. Um, we don't want to control the whole of Ukraine because that would be problematical. And besides, if we don't settle for this, then our friends in Beijing and Delhi and Ankara and Tehran might not be happy. So, I mean, he might do that, but that's the limit, in my opinion, to how far he would be prepared to go. Because if he went further, he would be inviting real political risks at home. And the one thing that Vladimir Putin has consistently shown is that he's not prepared to take risks with Russia's domestic stability. Yeah, a final question. Uh, have you seen any indication, though, that the West is even remotely uh, proposing such a return to to the, the March-April uh, uh, agreements? I mean, I, I haven't seen any indication no, that, that they're no, even no, considering no, I, going there. No, they, I mean, they, they, they've, they've, they've all taken pretty much maximalist Absolutely. Uh, views as far as a ceasefire uh, is concerned. The, 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 only, the, only, the only people who have spoken, who perhaps are looking at this, are Richard Haas and company. And remember, at the moment, this is an informal initiative. It hasn't been formally endorsed by the White House. Now, these are powerful, influential people. They probably speak for a lot of people within the US political uh, um, system, principally deep state people, by the way. I mean, they are, in effect, the epitome of the deep state in the United States. But if you're talking about political leaders in, in, in the West, no, they continue to go along with the maximalist demands that the Ukrainians continue to make. 
All right. Uh, we will end the video there, thedurad.locals.com. We are on Odyssey, Rumble, BitChute, Telegram, and Rockfin. And go to the Durad shop, 10% off. Use the code GOODDAY. Take care.